0: Good morning. My name is Ronald. I'm one of the pastors here at Wayside Chapel, and we are continuing our series on game changers. I know for me and my family, one of the biggest game changers was when we became parents. When we became parents, in 2010, the Lord blessed us with Sophie, our red-headed baby girl. Sophie got a head start on life. She was 10 pounds, 2 ounces. You can congratulate my wife later. Um, she, uh, they made jokes about Sophie driving us home from the hospital, and they were almost right. And then again in 2012, God blessed us again with another red-headed beauty, Penny. Uh, This is a picture of Penny and Sophie meeting for the very first time. And, yeah, Uh, super sweet. Penny we called our little cracker box uh, because whereas Sophie was 10-2, Penny was just under 7. And so we're holding her and going, oh, this is what a baby's supposed to feel like. Okay. (laughs) Got it. The issue with Penny, though is that we were f- prepared for the changing of the diapers and the napping and the feeding and everything else but Sophie spit up and you parents know what that is like that's just the like the kind of dribble that just happens uh, constantly Sophie spit up penny threw up and uh, I mean she was good like she you know projectile all over the place but it wasn't it wasn't just once it wasn't just twice it seemed like it was every meal she would throw up. And we brought her to our one-month checkup with our pediatrician, and we were kind of like telling him, hey, like, she is throwing up a lot. He's like, she's a baby. We're like, we got that. We know. <laughs> we have a baby. We've, ha- we've gone through this. She's-, she's throwing up a lot. He's like, it's okay. We'll-, well, we'll bring her back in a month, see what's going on. We bring her back in a month, and we find out that Penny's not gaining the weight like she should be. We find out that a normal baby should be gaining many ounces a day, like really kind of rolling along. Penny has just barely gone above her birth weight. And so they do what young families are afraid of. They diagnose her with something called failure to thrive. It's a good way to freak out a young family. And it basically means, I don't know what's wrong with your baby. You say, we want to see you in a week. We want you to feed her every three hours. Make sure she gets a great meal every three hours. Make sure it's happening. We do that. We go all week long. We are even supplementing with a medicine dropper and just getting her in between feedings, making sure something's going in her. We show up at the doctor, the pediatrician on a Thursday, and she's lost weight. And the pediatrician is telling, okay, all right, we know something is wrong with your baby. You guys think it, we think it too. We're going to figure it out. And they refer us over to our local hospital and say, we think it's got to be something with her stomach because if she's not gaining the weight and this is how she's eating, it's got to be something with her stomach. And so they send us to the hospital and they get x-rays of her stomach area to try to see what's going on. And I remember the doctor came back in and he, he kind of pokes Penny and he's smiling at us and talking to us and he looks at her and he goes, everything came back normal. Nothing's wrong here. I don't know what's wrong with your baby. But we're going to figure it out. We're going to do every test we can think of. We're going to start somewhere. Uh, Why don't we just do a chest x-ray just to see? Doctor comes back in with the results of the x-ray and sits down. And if you guys have ever been in a hospital setting before, when you see the doctor sit down in the room, you go, Stand back up. (laughs) because you know the news won't be good. He says, a radiologist thinks everything's okay, but I disagree with him. I actually think your daughter has an enlarged heart. It's pushing against her esophagus, and that's what's causing her to throw up. We can't do everything that I would like to do for your daughter here, so what I'm going to do now is I'm going to refer you over to the Children's Hospital in Nashville, Tennessee. So my 10-week-old daughter and my wife hop into an ambulance and go to Nashville, Tennessee. I head home, meet the in-laws who had come to take care of Sophie, pack bags, and head that way too. When I get there, there are doctors and nurses heading ar- like circling Penny and my wife in the ER. And by the time I get there, they've done another chest x-ray, and they say, yes, we agree, we- there is something wrong. She has an enlarged heart. It looks like she's going to be needing some medicine to try to bring that back to normal. We want to get some more clear images An hour later after those come back, they say, all right, what's going on is your your daughter has something called TAPVR, total anomalous pulmonary venous return. A normal heart has four veins going in, four arteries going away. Penny's had four veins going in, one artery going away. There was too much blood in her heart. The only thing that had kept her alive up to this point was God's grace and a heart murmur that was allowing blood to flow back to other chambers in her heart. They're saying, your daughter's going to need surgery. They're going to have to correct this. It's probably going to be sometime within a week. Another hour later, by this point, it is early Friday morning, very early Friday morning. Doctors, nurses come in, and they say, look, we're going to spend the rest of the day this Friday prepping your daughter. She's first thing in line Saturday morning. She's going to have open-heart surgery. And these words are just flowing over, Becca and I, and we're trying to process them. We're trying to understand what's happening. They put us up into a normal room, and we wait, and we prep. And it finally gets to be Friday night, and we're feeding our daughter for the very last time. And my wife, Becca, is just holding Penny, and she's just weeping. She's just weeping over our baby daughter. And I'm standing with her, I don't know what to say, I've got no words, and so I'm just holding them both. Becca would later tell me that she was praying to God, praying fervently, saying, God, please don't take my baby. But if you need her in heaven, you can have her. We wake up that next morning, we take Penny down to surgery, or carrying her as they wheel her bed next to her, and we give her to a nurse, and they walk her through a double door, out of sight. It's one of the hardest things I've ever had to do as a parent, was to give up my baby girl. But I knew that if she was going to have any hope of life that we had to give her up. We had. To give up her heart. And that's the big idea I want us to focus in on this morning as we turn to Mark chapter 10. To get life, you must give up your heart. To get life, you must give up your heart. Jesus' earthly ministry by this point in the book of Mark has been in full swing, miracles have been occurring. People have come to hear him preach, to see who this Jesus was. Some people just come because they're sick and in need. Others come because they have a desire to see more. There's one such man who's called the rich, young ruler. His story is in Matthew, Mark, and in Luke. We're going to look at Mark chapter 10. It tells us that Jesus was setting out on a journey and then gets confronted By this man. Mark 10, verse 17. As he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up, knelt down before him, and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Many people are asking this question. Many people are trying to find out is there life after life? Some would tell you that there is no life after life and that you had best live your life to the fullest right now. Live every moment the best way you can because this is it. When you die, you're done. Other religions would say, yes, there is life after life, but it must be earned. Do this list of things. Live this particular way and perhaps when you die, there will be life after life. And it may be good for you. If nothing else, we know this man is sincere. The Pharisees of Jesus' day would openly mock him and test him and try to trick him and get him to say something wrong. This man comes up and kneels down. He respects Jesus, he even calls him good. And Jesus has something to say about that particular word. Verse 18 says this, Why do you call me good? Jesus asked him. No one is good but one, God. Now I've been called many things since becoming a student minister. Some of them I can repeat back to you uh, here today in service. And, And one particular nickname since coming to Wayside that I got was on a mission trip. Last, last year, we were going to Mobile, Alabama. And as some of you might know, on a mission trip, sleep is not the highest of priorities. We try, it just doesn't always work. And I find myself and another male chaperone in a van completely full of girls. <laughs> and we're driving to Mobile, and I see one of them kind of groggily wake up from her nap and look towards the front and go, Hey, Mom? <laughs> I mean, Ronald? Ronald? I assured her that while on this trip, it was my job to take care of her and make sure her needs were met. I was not her mother. (laughs) Me being called mom is silly. If you hear our students do that, just disregard. It's okay. If me being called mom is silly, it's inaccurate. This man calling Jesus good was right. Jesus is not saying, don't call me good because only God is good. Jesus is saying, if you call me good, you call me God. I want you to know who you're talking to. Who is God? Many people wonder who God is. And I would say that, yes, God is good. God is good because he is our creator. He made everything, us included. I love to build. I love to create. I love to make things with my hand, whether it's with pen and paper, paintbrush or canvas or drywall and spackle and at least three trips to Home Depot. I love to build and create. But when I do, I need raw materials. When I make something, I need something. When God created, he needed nothing. He spoke and planets spun into motion. He spoke and stars lit on fire. God needed nothing to make something. But not just that. God's word also tells us that every single individual in this room was handcrafted by God. You have been made by God. He made you. And because he is our creator who has made us, he is good. But he's not just good because he's our creator. He is also good because he is holy. In the Bible, Leviticus 19.2, God speaking to the Israelite community says, I am holy. He wants them to know his character. Holy means set apart. Holy means perfect. If we were to look at a standard of perfection, we would not look around us, we would not look at creation, we would look to God, because only God is perfect, only God is holy. And because he's holy, God is good. But he's not just good because he is a creator nor is he only good because he is holy, he is also good because he is our judge. Leviticus 19:2 also says, "Be holy." For I am holy. God commands of us, be perfect. God is the one who can say, be perfect. Because he is perfect. He can tell us this because he is our good judge. Now, some of you in this room might be thinking and saying to yourself, Ronald, I'm looking at my life, I look at the world around me, and I have to sometimes wonder, is God really all that good? If God were good, why would there be hate? If God were good, why would there be pain and sickness and death and heartache and disease? If God were good, why is there so much evil in this world that he created? Jesus begins to address that with a rich young ruler in Mark chapter 10. Continuing, verse 19. You know the commandments, Jesus continues. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. He said to him, Teacher, I have kept all these for my youth. And looking at him, Jesus loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go sell all you have and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. And then come, follow me. But he was stunned at this demand. And went away grieving. Because he had many possessions. Jesus brings up. The problem of sin. The reason there is so much evil in the world, the reason it looks like the world is not good is because there is sin. What is sin? Sin is anything we think, say, or do that is contrary to God's law. Anything we think, say, or do that is contrary to God's law. And some of those laws, Jesus points out to this man. He points out the half of the Ten Commandments that deal with our relationships with other people. And whether out of ignorance or arrogance, this man comes before Jesus and says, I have done all of these things. And perhaps some of us today could say, you know, if I were to take the commandments and put them into a category over here, I would look pretty good. If I only singled out these ones over here and put them right here, I would look pretty good. But then Jesus goes straight for this man's heart. He says, I know you look good, but one thing you lack Go and sell all your possessions. Give them to the poor. Then you'll have treasure in heaven. And then come follow me. Jesus is not pointing out the fact that this man's possessions are evil. Jesus is pointing out that this man's greed, his desire for his possessions is evil. And he brings it into focus and says, you hold your possessions so tightly You look at the treasure of earth and the treasure of heaven and then decide that what you have here on earth is more valuable. It says this man was stunned. He holds his head in shame and walks away. If Jesus were to come to us today, And we might make a claim and say, Jesus, these things I've done well. What would he say when he says, one thing you lack? Where would Jesus point out your secret sins in your life? Would it be your thoughts or your pride? Your lust or your greed? Your hate or your envy? The reality is that all of us have sin. None of us in this room is perfect And the Bible clearly tells us that sin separates us from God. Because he is holy, we are separate from him. And our sin earns us not life, but death. And not just a first death, a second death. A death that separates us from God for all eternity. A death that will be a punishment for the sins we have committed here on earth. This is the death we die. When we rely on ourselves... And we cling to our sin. This is what we have. And in reality, Jesus is turning the traditionally held Jewish beliefs of wealth up on its head. Jesus' disciples would have believed that any man who had great wealth was blessed by God. And therefore, right with God. Jesus drives right at the heart to say, this man's heart was wrong. And therefore, He is not right with God. Look at the disciples' reactions. In verse 23, Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. But the disciples were astonished at his words. Again, Jesus said to him, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, just in case you need a refresher course, this is a needle. This, this is a needle right here. And because, you know, I can, I can work my way around a button... I, I can fix a button if need be. I fix pa- more than one pair of pajamas at our house every now and then. So I, I know what a needle is. And just in case you need a refresher course, this frustratingly small hole right up here at the top, that's the eye. That's, that's the eye of a needle. See, I even had to have this thing pre-threaded because it takes me at least 10 minutes to even get the thread on one of these needles if it's up to me. You know, a camel, according to Google, at least, is six feet tall on average. A camel also weighs 2,000 pounds, which if you were to ask my daughter how much I weigh, if you were to ask Sophie, she'd tell you I weigh 2,000 pounds. (laughs) So my daughter's bad math, notwithstanding, it's impossible for me to put myself through the eye of this needle. More so it would be if we had a camel up here on stage. It is impossible to put anything other than thread through the eye of this needle. Jesus tells us, if you are wealthy, if you are rich, you are that likely to enter the kingdom of heaven. And I know some of you at this point are going, oh, good thing. Dodge the bullet on that one. That guy over there. He's wealthy. Me? Uh-uh, I am broke. Did you know? Did you know that the global annual average income per year per family is1,500 dollars? The global average annual income per family is1,500 dollars. That's spending four dollars a day. The average teenager could bring that home in a summer job. The average income of the state of Texas for families is $51,000 a year. Friends, we are all very rich, we are all very wealthy. And now, why would Jesus say to us then, it is difficult, it is hard for someone who has money to enter into the kingdom of heaven? Perhaps it is because how I've seen in my own life when the pantry is full, when the bank account's in the black, when the bills are paid up, I tend to forget how desperately I need God. I tend to forget how desperately I need a Savior. These words Jesus is saying to his disciples, take them back. They, don't, they can't understand it. They ask him, verse 26, so they were even more astonished saying to one another, then who can be saved? Looking at them, Jesus said, with men it is impossible, but not with God, because all things are possible with God. Jesus should know very well that all things are possible with God. Jesus should know very well what God's secret rescue plan is. Because Jesus is the main part of God's rescue plan. Jesus knew this was why he had come to earth. Because with man it is impossible but not with Jesus. Who is Jesus? Bible tells us in Hebrews that Jesus was tempted in every way as you and I, but unlike us, he never sinned. Fully human, fully God. And he lived the perfect life required of us. We could not do it. So God sent Jesus to live it for us. And not only that, God sent Jesus to pay the punishment for our sins. We deserve to be punished for our sins. We deserve to die for our sins. Jesus, deserving none of that, went to the cross and died in our place. Jesus did not just die a physical death for us. He endured all of our eternal punishment for us on the cross. Because of Jesus' death, our punishment for sin can be taken away. Because of Jesus' death, our guilt for sin can be taken away. Because of Jesus' perfect life, those who would trust in Christ, God would credit his perfect life to you. So that when God looks at you, instead of our sinful lives, he would see Jesus' perfect life. I praise God Jesus did not stay dead Three days later, he arose from the tomb to proclaim that everything he said he was, he was, and still is today. And to show us that we have future hope, future life, life after life. This is who Jesus is. Jesus is our Savior. Jesus is the one who has come to rescue us. But then I love Peter because he can't keep his mouth shut. No matter what, Peter likes to just say whatever's on his mind. And in verse 28, he does this. Peter began to tell him, look, we have left everything and followed you. Perhaps they could still see the young ruler walking away. And Peter pointing to him says, he left But we are with you, Jesus. Jesus then replies, I assure you, there is no one who has left house, brothers or sisters, mother or father, children or fields because of me and the gospel who will not receive a hundred times more. Now at this time, houses, brothers and sisters, mothers and children's fields with persecutions and eternal life in the age to come. But many who are first will be last. And the last, first. Peter tells Jesus, we have decided to follow you. Jesus then replies, anyone who leaves family, anyone who leaves friends, anyone who leaves opportunities, they will get a hundredfold back. If your family is estranged you because of your faith, you enter into a faith family that spans the globe. Brothers and sisters who love and encourage you because you are their brother or sister in Christ. Older saints who are now becoming your surrogate mothers and fathers. A family who can surround you and love you and support you. Jesus says, if you leave me, if you leave the, all of the treasures of earth for me, you get all of this, but you do also receive persecutions. The Christian life has never been promised to us to be comfortable or easy. Jesus tells us that there will be persecutions. There will be hard times. But follow me, and in the end, you will have life after life. You will receive eternal life. With God in heaven. This is what Jesus tells them. Awaits them. So my question to you then. Is what is your response? What would you say? The rich young ruler. Looked at the treasures on earth. And thought that they were more valuable. Than anything Jesus had to offer him. And so therefore ran. The disciples said. We have left everything because we know there is nothing more valuable than our Savior. There is nothing greater than our God. What is your choice? What is your decision? Will you be like the rich young ruler who looks at the treasures that are around you right now and say, I will not hold these lightly. This is all I want. Or will you be like the disciples and thousands of others who have decided to follow after Christ? Maybe you've never decided to follow after Christ. Maybe you've never made that decision before. In a little bit, I do want to give you the opportunity to follow after Jesus for the first time. For those of you who already are following Jesus... What would Jesus point to you and say? What is the thing you lack? Perhaps you are following Jesus, but there's something that is holding back your heart from following him fully. What is the one thing that you need to say, Jesus, you are right. This is what I have been lacking. This is what I've been trying to hold on to while I also follow you. I pray you would give that up, give that sin away so you can more rightly follow Jesus. Because friends, it is always better to get life By giving up your heart. I know this in my own personal life because of my salvation. I also know this because of the story that God allowed us to live through Penny. Penny underwent a six-hour open-heart surgery operation. The surgeon came out, and the surgeon had the smallest hands you've ever seen in your life. It was perfect for working on our 10-week-old baby girl. And he said, everything was textbook. Everything has gone well. I have no doubt in my mind that your daughter will live a completely normal life. As soon as we found out, we saw this and we were just so glad and happy that we got our baby girl back. But that doctor had no clue what he was talking about when he said Penny would have a normal life. Penny exudes life. She is the most energetic, vivacious three-year-old you have ever met. Here she is leading the pack as a family trip as we walk down the trail and leaving poor sister Ruth all the way behind her. Uh, Penny exudes life. Her physical heart has been made better. Her physical heart has been healed. And because of this story, we've been able to talk with her because of this, we've been able to tell her, this is what God has done in your life. And in a rare moment, when my wife was actually able to corral her for a minute, uh, she talked with Penny. And she was asking her what God did in her life. I want to show you this like short little clip of what she said. What do you tell him? What happened to your heart? What happened to my heart? No, what did happen to your heart? What did ha- happen to my heart? Don't say what I say. Say... What happened? What, what was wrong with your heart? What, was, what happened to me? What's wrong with my heart? What was wrong with your heart? Can you tell me? Um, <laughs> it was hurt. It was broken. And what happened? <laughs> it healed. Who healed it? No? Who healed it? Um, Dad. How did he heal that? How did God heal your heart? He has power. That's right. What does he have power to do? Heal. That's right. I credit VBS with all of that. <laughs> God does have. <clears throat> Friends, God does have the power to heal broken hearts. Penny's physical heart has been healed And we pray that because of this reality in her life, that we can then take her and point her and say, Penny, your physical heart has been healed, but let's show you how your spiritual heart can be healed. Let's show you how you can have a new heart because of what Jesus has come to do. Friends, if you have never asked Jesus to heal your heart, I pray that today you would. That today would be the day when you look at Christ and decide that there is nothing more valuable than following Jesus. Would you pray with me? Father God, Creator, Holy Judge, Thank you for loving us. God, you looked at us as your sinful people, but you loved us. You loved us so much that you didn't want to leave us in our sin, but you sent Jesus to do what we could not, to live a perfect life in our place, to die the death we deserved and to come back from the grave to show us that he is God and that he is good. God, for those in the room who have never decided to follow Jesus, God, is my hope and my prayer that they would run to you, perhaps even praying something like this. God, I know I am a sinner. I know my sin separates me from you, God. And I know that because of my sin, I deserve to die. But I accept the gift of your son's life. I know his death was my death. And I know that the life he lives now is the promise I have of hope. God, I commit to follow you for the rest of my life. Knowing that I cannot earn this life But God, you give it freely. Lord, for those of us in this room who have already committed to follow after Jesus, I pray that we would inspect our hearts. God, look into my own heart. Show me what I lack. Show me, Father God, how I can follow you more fully and live a life that honors you. God, we love you. Because we know you loved us first. It's in Jesus' name I ask and pray all these things. Amen.